gentlemen welcome to episode 0014 of the movie wars podcast one of these days i'm gonna get organized i'm your host kyle and i'm kyle's inflamed sense of rejection i'm drew i think the president should just clean up this whole mess he should just flush it right down the fucking toilet i'm phil (laughs) (laughs) and phil what is the what is the one thing that bothers you the most i think you should just take reddit and flush it down the fucking (laughs) toilet Wow, that was. I feel good about that intro. That was that was the best. Top, I mean, notch, Phil guys. just. I mean, we we I made up for all of my lack of preparedness in the past. <laughs> it was beautiful. Well, we have a crazy matchup today, and these are two films that you know I know we wanted to do. Taxi Driver is my favorite film, and it just turns out the Fight Club is. It's not even close. The most requested fan movie on hmm. social messages we get. No, there's no movie that I get more requests for. Wow. Than Fight Club, and there's a reason for that. Fight Club. Think about when we were in college. We're all in our you know, mid-30s in this room. Do you remember Lost? Oh, yeah, man. The obsession. Fight Club is the movie version of that. Mm, you know, yeah. the and that's anecdotal. I have no data to back that up. I'm just speaking about my experience. When that movie came out, to this day, there are still, I mean, you want to talk about Reddit, there are just websites that are rabbit holes. There's just an obsession over this movie. It's a rabbit holey kind of film. It really is. There are so many themes. I attribute it to, to a lot of things, but one of the things is, is 1999 is a crazy year because I call it the year of the twist ending artist because you know what other movie came out? The Sixth Sense. But the thing is, is that David Fincher has more longevity because get this resume. 95, 7, 1997, The Game. 5, 99, oh. Fight Club. Every two years f- since 95, that dude has been releasing stuff. Each of those movies has its own crazy twist ending. And But I think Fight Club just, it just because it's so stylish, Fincher just shows off because he was a commercial, he was a commercial director. I think he directed music videos and he has his own style. I, Are it, you serious? It, yeah. I feel like that shows. It yeah. does, and just some also of the, that that movie was a Johnny Depp away from being a uh, Burton Tim Burton, Tim Burton film. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was a Johnny Depp. You about Fight Club? Yes, it yeah. was like it was like a shade of purple and a Johnny Depp away from being a fucking Tim Burton. Film. Yeah, that some of the stylization. Yeah, I mean, Fight Club had a style that it, he he showed glimpses because Seven was kind of the movie that's like David Fincher is here, and it had its own style with the credits, like the whole credits thing that he does in Seven. He does in Fight Club with the crazy intro credits and all this stuff. Like he just has a style he, he and he brings that commercial element and it's really unique to him and, and no and it's what makes him one of the greats what's crazy is we almost didn't get David Fincher now I'm not saying we wouldn't have gotten seven seven was a movie that was going to get made regardless but he did Alien 3 in 1992 it was his first major production and it made him want to quit film he hated the the overreach of the executives mm-hmm. the lack of creative vision the constant interruption and redirection of his artistic vision he said he never wanted to make a movie again he was done he was like I'm gonna go back to commercials I'm going to go back to music Ooh, videos. Yeah. And so what's crazy is we were like a hair away from not getting a David Fincher 7 fight club in the game. That's that's the thing, isn't it? Like well, the, and, and Zodiac and Social yeah. Network. Oh, Social Network. Gone Network's Girl. Insane. And then um, House Benjamin of Cards. Benjamin Button. House, House of first Cards. First two episodes of House of Cards. Basically, well, I mean, he's still, he was executive on that show the whole time, which I know could mean anything. It could mean he was hands-on or way off. But I mean, just think about the fact that House of Cards essentially established the streaming series as like mm-hmm. a legitimate 
form of entertainment. So you know? true. So you know, and another thing that's that's really different now is is even in 1999. I mean, think about how our view of mental health and wellness has changed just in the last yeah. few years. People are more open about therapy. 99, it wasn't like that. In 1976, it definitely wasn't like this. And it's funny because in Fight Club, it's actually part of the the script when they say, you know, stop messing with us because we're the people that cook your food. But think about it. In Taxi Driver in 1976, we even have a more degraded view of mental well or mental health. And it really plays in this idea that the people that cook your food, that drive your cabs, that pull your tickets at the theater could be absolute psychopaths. And that's really, it's an eerie thought. I don't even know if it was that was the message as much as it was just, to me, it was this big, gigantic metaphor talking about how this fight club situation and the instability of all the people were a reflection of the working class more so than like mm-hmm. that these, the working class might be psychopaths. I think it was more of like a don't fuck with the working class kind of message versus like these people might be insane. I could be wrong about right. that. But hmm. yeah, good point. Like I think the insanity of the people in Fight Club in those groups and like then the fact that they go, you know, start the Fight Club and then the soap factory or whatever to like take power back or whatever was just more mm-hmm. about them as the working class feeling right. disenfranchised more more than being crazy. Yeah, and in Fight Club, that's a great point. I think it's more obvious in Taxi Driver, the, the mental element. And I think mental illness is definitely a huge part of Fight Club, but it's more buried in what you talked about, which is it's a message about machismo, about what men are and, and whether you agree with it or not. And this is not me making a statement about this point of view, but a huge point in Fight Club, especially, and this is in the book too, is that we're a generation of men raised by women. How does that affect our Ooh, masculinity? Yeah, How does that affect, you know, and, and the message is, is that for the narrator, Edward Norton's character, it's buying Ikea, it's shopping in his catalog, it's being obsessed with his materials, it's doing the job, wearing the nice tie and like all the things. And Tyler Durden is the id, if you're a Freud fan, he's the id saying, you know, those things don't matter. You're primal, you're a violent man, you know, and this is how you take your manhood back. So the mental illness is kind of in that film was more of the caveat into those other themes, whereas catalyst. Uh, also a catalyst <laughs> and taxi driver. It's a little more apparent. Caviar. Caviar. Yeah, it was the caviar it's, into <laughs> the fish ass where the caviar comes it's out It's really the caviar the list. Cattle. You know, and, and this thing is it's crazy because we had a little bit of this with Raging Bull Rock. We were like, is this the right matchup? And I couldn't. And Phil, you were not. I thought I had a long list of things, but you started texting me about it. There's so many tendrils oh, man, between I, these two When films. I was watching Fight Club, I had like, there were even more connections than I thought. I was just, mm-hmm. my mind was going nuts. Like the parallels between the two yeah. movies were, one was more on the nose and one was way more metaphoric. But yes. like, it was almost like Fight Club was the metaphor for what Taxi Driver was trying to say. Yes. You know what I mean? Both films, Insomnia was kind of the, you know, again, the word catalyst was the catalyst, the launching board mm-hmm. into the degraded mental states. Both films, and this is really heavily kind of the axis by, and you look at this as the core point, but they both launch off in different directions, obviously with the protagonists. Well, in both movies, they're protagonist slash antagonist, but this is the core and they express in different ways throughout the film. But both of the films, the burgeoning madness, the degraded mental states lead to paradoxical missions. You know, mm. for, if you think about it in Taxi Driver, the paradox is, is that we purify through violence. Mm-hmm. We rebuild through destruction. Yep. It's that idea mm. that, it, and it's kind of, and before we hit record today, we were talking about the irony of Fight Club being that, yeah, we're going to create anarchy. We're going to, you know, we're going to bring down civilization and rebuild it. But what do they do to achieve that? They're attacking capitalism by using capitalism's playbook. It's ironic. They're franchising chaos. They're franchising yeah. anarchy by building fight clubs everywhere. So how are we going to attack it's, that? Yeah. We're going to corporatize to attack corporatizing. So it's, it's really interesting how the degraded mental states that are in these films are used to leverage and launch these characters into what I would consider acts of irony. 
irony. Um, you know, taxi driver, you know, you you did a great job, even though it was your intro. That whole monologue about cleaning up the sewer of the streets. Well, how is he going to clean up the violence and the robbing and the horrible stuff in New York? Well, he's going to do the horrible things. That, that was the crazy, I mean, this is probably getting way ahead of what we're trying to talk about, but that was the crazy thing to me about Taxi Driver was that movie, like if you really think about it, that movie's climax is really a massive letdown almost, but not from a filmmaking perspective, but more like from the position of if this was a real guy, if Travis Bickle was a real dude, that climax is such a buzzkill. Like he's got this whole mission about flushing the filth down the toilet and everywhere he looks, he just sees all these disgusting things. And what does he do? He like shoots a pimp, shoots some gangster. Then he gets credited with bringing down this mob boss or whatever, but it's like a total accident. Right. He's just so bloodthirsty and he's trying to attach a mission to it that he, I mean, he ends up doing something, I guess that's considered good and big, but he doesn't even know he's doing it. Yeah, he was conflict conflicted. And to your point, one of the haunting sip. things about Bickle was, and Paul Schrader, the writer who is, is <clears throat> this movie, as much as it's a Scorsese film, this is a Paul Schrader film. It's his writing. It's, it's not his life story, but it's a metaphor for what he was feeling at the time. He said that ending shot, and that ending shot creates a lot of uh, controversy within the film loving community that was this a was this a dream or the you know is he actually not a hero this is actually the last dying wish of his his bleeding out dying mind is this whole thing you know a dream but that really wasn't based on all my research based on what Scorsese says based on yeah, what Schrader says it was not an exaggeration or it wasn't a dream but his point was with that whole when he looks back after he drops off Sybil Shepherd at the end was they wanted to leave you with the idea that this was a blip on the radar maybe he looks like a hero now but this guy is going to do this again he, it, yeah. it's just going to be a matter of time before he wells up and he takes his violence out not on the pimp but on, on an actual politician or on the wrong person this is a person capable of violence and will strike again and that was the whole point of the ending scene yeah well because of the lack of context at the end there that the police had when they enter into that situation they assume he's a hero because there's a girl being freed and there are a bunch of bad guys that are dead and this guy doesn't have a record he's ex-military he was a cab driver and so the assumption is like he saved this girl and he did this heroic thing when he was just bloodthirsty like right. he was, so then he almost he gets like vindicated the uh assumption that he's gonna go off and do something else is is probably valid kind of chilling though that letter that is read oh, at the right? end from her folks to you guys point i think the even the way that last scene is shot where the, it comes up to the ceiling it's very much a fly on the wall perspective it wants it almost wants to pull you out emotionally so that you can kind of see it like oh god like what a mess this what, is yeah, right like, it's a fantastic this was all ending an accident and it's gonna happen again and yeah yeah because really he just he got validated it was like i did a good thing and now he's just going to feel more empowered next time to go like yeah you know off a politician or <laughs> somebody who is you know not objectively bad isn't it interesting though even as a viewer like i know i know at watching the movie this guy is clearly ill deranged <laughs> yeah just but little. also i felt so happy that there was like some sense of justice in such a mm -hmm. dark twisted movie. when he kills sport yeah like the reason i knew i was pulling for him so hard even in his dark deranged state is when he tried to commit suicide and he's just like click 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 like he's trying to and just nothing i was like oh good he I couldn't know. kill himself <laughs> like yeah. I, I found myself like oh yeah i really don't want this guy to die because i really do care about him as a viewer it's weird the moral conundrums this puts hmm. us in because this puts us in a real life situation where we're judging evil based on contextual evil i and i hate this cliche phrase but every election what do they say you're picking the best of two evils i hate that phrase but it really is true in and of himself travis bickle is a scary despicable person but he takes out a pimp and frees a, a minor prostitute back to her family and saves her. I'm not saying this is 
of what we do, but we're asking ourselves, and the point you just made is, am I willing to accept that he's insane and unstable, but he took care of the worst of the worst, may do it again to the wrong person down the road, but right now we're happy. Same with um, same with Fight Club. I think we can agree that in some ways, credit card companies are predatory. So it's like, well, it's horrible that they're destroying you know public property and they're doing it in the worst way possible with explosives. But I think we can agree that you know credit card companies can't be predatory. So it's like, I'm not, and I, that is not me saying that I agree with any of those things. I'm just saying that it puts the no, viewer Kyle in a position. Kyle agrees with them. He's saying yeah. you should go blow up Well, I just got back from a brothel and there was a guy, his name wasn't Sport. <laughs> Yeah, his name wasn't Sport. His name was Chess and Checkers, and I actually yeah. uh, his name that's, that's was his Robert. Uh, yeah. what's his name? His name was Robert Paulson. Paulson. Robert Paulson, the pimp. Yeah, yeah. with his man. Robert Pimpson. That is, and that is what a lot of the great films we cover on this podcast do. It puts you as the viewer in that seat, and you are th you can't help but think morally, what does this mean to me in my context of living in my humanity, in my religion, or whatever your daily is? What does this mean for me? Like, do I take this little bit of evil to erase the worst evil, or what is all mean? evil evil? It's like, I, I don't know about you guys, but me, I'm just mentally, as a philosopher and a person that is super analytical, I'm just like, I don't know what to think. Well, it, to me, it also brings into the light the ambiguity of what people consider to be evil. Like, we're going to bring down the establishment, bring down that the desire that people have, This talking about Fight Club. And so they blow up all those credit card buildings. And it's like, depending on your definition of evil and what, you know, economic philosophies you subscribe to and what political philosophies and moral philosophies, to some people that's evil and to some people that isn't. So so it's like both of these mm -hmm. movies really bring into light like the reality of moral ambiguity. It's not I, that's it's it's really easy to you know stand on some any kind of philosophical soapbox and say that you know morality is not ambiguous and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it is. It comes down to your value system and where you grew up and how you grew up and all that stuff. And uh, that that's the I think the beautiful thing about both of these films is it questions do the you know does the end justify the means and what is evil at the end of the day. That is well said. This is fun, actually. So not only what is your experience with these films, but today's question is, if you could fight any historical figure, who would you fight? Oh, oh man. Did he want him to say Abraham Lincoln in yeah. the movie? <laughs> That's the most real. I like when he said, well, he asked uh, Ed Norton who he'd fight, and he said Gandhi. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Pitt was like, taken aback, he's like, That's a good one. Because yeah, <laughs> it is. And you could describe that film with that one line. That, like, sums up that whole movie to me. <laughs> so I saw both these movies when I was in my, you know, early 20s my uneducated film novicery. Didn't really care too much about them. Really fresh eyes watching these again for this podcast. Uh, the thing that stood out to me with both of these movies, obviously there's like the mental illness aspect. There's this like descent into just chaos or whatever. But the thing that stuck out to me the most was just how the environments played such a role. And it does, it's a little cliche to say like, oh, the environment's a character. But like it really, the environment in Taxi Driver, like grimy, grungy 70s New York is a character. It's just like you look at De Niro and be like, oh, he's like, he's got the green jacket and he's, you know, oh, he shaved his head and he's got the mohawk. Like, you can look at the mo the movie and say, oh, like, that's 70s New York. There's, like, steam coming out of the sewage. There's trash. And, and it compels the character. Like, he's sitting in the cab talking to the president about how it's, like, even as fucked up as he is as a character, like, it's, like, it's taking a toll on him. And maybe you could say it is contributing to where he's at as a character. Same with Fight Club. Like, the, the house, just that grunt. Bungie, that disgusting house was a house. Yeah. So, it's almost living and breathing how gross it is. And it plays a role in what, how the characters make a decision. I mean, just sitting there reading those those stacks of magazines, like it really has an impact when he's running the water. Like it's very visceral, oh, yeah. just everything that the, mm -hmm. that environment. The, something that kept hitting me as funny in Fight Club was how he'd be getting ready for work in his like pressed shirt and going through like a normal morning routine, but in that shithole of yes. a house. I had the same exact like, thought when Pitt was, was 
in the bathtub. I'm like, yes. why even take a bath? Like, I know. What are you it doing? was so. I loved the imagery in the, in that film, yeah. and even the point when they're hitting golf balls and it said like we were alone for by like a mile. Like that's so yeah. indicative of how he felt as a as a human being. Yeah, like, he felt isolated, and so I just love the way Scorsese and Fincher used the environments. So anyway, that was the big takeaway, the big uh, connection point for me outside of the obvious things. I saw Fight Club. I feel like I saw that around the time it came out, which would be about right. I'd have been like 14 or so. I remember just like Drew said, lack of ability to appreciate film just because of age and lack of experience and lack of life experience. You know, you're a kid, you you see things a lot more of a base level. I just remember enjoying it because I thought it was cool. Like it was a cool movie. It was about, you know, a bunch of crazy dudes who started a fight club and then made soap and had a twist at the end. So I just enjoyed it for what it was. Probably saw it a few times as an adult, got more meaning out of it. But man, something, I think honestly, uh, watching it against Taxi Driver this time, I was in this headspace of trying to like derive connections and parallels and all these things. And so it made me watch the movie from a totally different perspective. And like a lot of movies on this podcast that we that we watch for the podcast, I feel like I got way more out of it watching it through that lens of how does this relate to Taxi Driver and how is are these stories kind of run in parallel with each other. So it was a really incredible experience like getting to see it through that lens this time mm-hmm. around and taxi driver i actually saw at kyle's recommendation i remember exactly when it was it was like thanksgiving break 2019 you know the before times man i watched it out on the uh, my porch with a cigar yeah baby. and it was smoking a cigar watching this movie with the soundtrack <laughs> that jazz soundtrack like in the dark it was it felt so, right it was it so, felt so good. good like and i remember i was texting kyle the whole time like this movie is amazing <laughs> like yeah I, I get why this is your favorite film it's an incredible I was movie. excited great soundtrack by the way I love so that we will shit. definitely oh get yeah that. incredible soundtrack and yeah so taxi driver i just once again loved the the story that it told it, i mean it's hard to say loved about a movie like that because it's so dark and semi-demented but like i just love me a good slow-paced story like zoom in on the character type of film like that and in my opinion it's one of scorsese's best so as always i feel so blessed to be here talking about it and uh side note if you're listening to this and you've never smoked a cigar on a porch while watching a movie, do it now. We're going to smoke cigars after. That's what we do after every show. So my experience, you know, I've talked about Taxi Driver being my favorite movie and, and it's really weird. I, you know, Scorsese is my favorite director, but this movie's so different. You know, you look at a Goodfellas, which is probably, I, I, I'm i going to say this, Goodfellas is his best film. Even though it's his best film, it's still my second favorite film of all time. Taxi Driver, it spoke to me. The style, it's minimal. It's a low budget film. What's really interesting to me is that by the time, and we'll get into these details later, but by the time that De Niro got to this film. He had already won his Best Supporting Actor for Godfather 2. It just packed this punch. I just felt punched in the stomach. I felt confronted. Uh, You know, and Scorsese became later known for his crime films and his mob films, but he doesn't do that here. And we always talk about what he does well is that character study, that three-hour zoom in on that thing that makes that person disgusting. That's where this started, but it's that minus the Italian mob. I just thought it was such a character study. And I just, De Niro, Foster, they got Albert Brooks in this movie. I mean, it's just, I don't know why. I just felt taken on a journey. And I also watched it during my minimalist time. I always talk about my Netflix physical disc subscription, but I didn't have a microwave. You know, I didn't have internet at the time, but I, I think it hit me at a time where I was very lonely. I had moved to Nashville to play music. I didn't know anyone and I, I was alone. I, I literally knew no one here and I had never felt so lonely. And I watched Taxi Driver on my Netflix subscription. I just remember it speaking to me. I was just Uh-oh. like, God, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, you wonder <laughs> why I painted my- to you exactly That's why there, I painted Kyle? my Camry yellow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So, but Fight Club, I don't sleep. That's why you did the mohawk thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's been a weird day, by the that's way. That's why you so killed those the pimps. Gosh, it's starting to make a lot of sense. But you know, Fight Club. You know, Fincher is to me is one of the great artisans. He's a guy we almost didn't get because of Alien Three. He's so stylistically different. You know, it's in that and Scorsese did the same thing with Taxi Driver, but Fincher had already kind of etched in his style with Seven and then the game. These were movies that were like kind of psychological, but kind of horror, really messed with your brain, but there's always a great twist. And Fight Club is, to me, is just him showing like his style, that commercial directing, that music video directing, the colors, um, you know, the fluorescence. All of his films have this weird fluorescent lighting thing. Um, he doesn't use a lot of natural light, if you notice. The, you know, when you look at Seven, the game, and Fight Club, it's not, the, how much natural lighting and sunlight is there in these movies? Not a lot. Zero. I just feel like Fincher does this thing where he just leaves his imprint. Randos. Best part of the patty. I want to do a disclaimer. Fight Club fans, I hear you. You wanted us to do Fight Club, me too. This is one of those movies that has Easter eggs and just websites dedicated to it. We're going to cover as many as we have time for. I've written down a bunch because this is a film you could talk about for hours, but we are hitting the ones that are interesting to us. But feel free on TikTok and stuff to share the ones you like. Also, while we're doing disclaimers and shout outs to fans, a comment that I see a lot is, well, anyone who's seen the special features knows this info or anyone who's read this book knows this feature. You know what? Most people haven't. So shut the fuck up. <laughs> And let people enjoy learning through a different medium. And also, it's interesting and entertaining to me to hear someone, yes, regurgitate the stat or yeah. the fact, but it's interesting to hear a different personality or perspective Yeah, about What are you going to kick down the doors of a kindergarten class and bitch at a kindergarten teacher for teaching kids one plus one equals two? It's like, well, most people know this. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. these kids don't. And guess what? Anyone listening to this podcast might know some of these facts, but you might not know yeah. them. And you know what? If you got a problem with that, don't fucking listen. I I could be wrong about this, but there might be an other, a different movie podcast you could listen to if you don't like ours. Yeah, yeah. listen to one where everybody <laughs> knows everything already. That's yeah. your crowd. Where the it's I'm not, an asshole movie podcast. Yeah, or some dude sitting there, you know, getting stoned every night talking about his favorite ver way to watch his favorite know, Pineapple Pokemans. Express. I'm glad you said that because for here's the thing, for every one person that comments that, there's thousands of people that comment and say, wow, that's cool. Yeah. So Yeah, or you could have forgotten it. Or some people don't watch the special features. A lot like of people me. don't. I learned things on this podcast. I should... I've said it before. I shouldn't even be on this podcast. <laughs> but we you love know, you. Yeah, I'm just here for to say weird shit and call people out. And This is a multifaceted rando. So Brian De Palma, and actually this is one thing. I'm a Scorsese lifer. I didn't know this. Brian De Palma is his best friend. They live close together. I think they were neighbors. He gave Martin Scorsese the script for Taxi Driver because De Palma didn't feel like it was a good film for him, but he thought Martin would like to do it. I, I have Marty in my notes because I feel like I know him intimately even though we've never met. Yeah, he texts you all the time. Yeah, he does. I feel like he does. You call him Marty, for God's yeah. sake. He also met Bernard Herman. So, and Drew is going to enlighten us more about his resume because he's a big Bernard Herman fan, but Bernard was recommended by Brian De Palma and he was really resistant to doing the movie when Scorsese called him and he finally answered the phone. I think he was in Europe at the time and he said, I don't do movies about cab drivers. <laughs> That was his response. This is the Fair guy enough. that made the legendary score to Taxi Driver. Well, you're thinking, you're talking about the guy who did a little movie called Citizen Kane. He right. did Psycho, Vertigo. I mean, he is in the halls of film music. Because we were the talking, halls I asked, of fame. I asked Drew, I was like, well, didn't John Williams? <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Because I the asked Drew of earlier, I was like, well, didn't John Williams already do Jaws? And you reminded me, he was like, well, he was just getting started. Like, Herman died having done all these movies after Williams had just gotten started. I mean, this guy is a legend. 
legend. Yeah, and so he was really resistant. But the this is really funny. The scene that got him to make him want to do the film was when Bickle is pouring sh- peach schnapps into his cereal. That's the scene and that then he made put Herman want to do it. Sugar on it. That was so gross. That's when he so realized gross. he's like, oh, this isn't your typical. This isn't just about a cab driver. Like this is a different oh. movie. Um. So and he said from the beginning, he said when he started watching the footage, he just thought brass. Like so, he just started thinking brass. We got to do jazz. Um. Because and Paul Schrader, the writer. Again, we're going to talk about Schrader a lot because this is as much of a Schrader film as it is a Scorsese film. Sure, sure. He he called Scorsese out. He's like, he's a needle drop addict. We talked about this. It worked really well with Goodfellas. Hated it in The Departed. But he was like, not at the time though. Right. I mean, well, he had Scor- done one movie. Right. Well, he did it in Mean Streets. He did have a lot of needle drop. And so, and Schrader knew this about him that he loved Stones. He loved all this stuff. So he told him it, Scorsese's like, well, I've never worked with a composer before. And so this was a big challenge for Scorsese. This is the crazy thing, though, and this is a big rando because Bernard Herman almost quit several times. He kept getting pissed at the orchestra. He just didn't think they were doing it right. And they finally finished it, and he died the night they finished the score. That is so... Literally killed him. Wow. Yeah, it literally was the end of him. Wow. Yeah, so. He seems like a character. There are certain clients that'll do you in. Like, yeah, I love that he said, I don't do movies about cab drivers. I just love that response. Like, if they approached him about yeah, Star Wars, would just... he been like, I don't do movies about space. You know, <laughs> Doesn't it's like... he just sound like a movie character? Yeah, he yeah. does. Just this uptight, like, yeah. just like artistic music director named Bernard that just wants to do it his way and then dies. In well, the my question the- is like to say something like that. Is there a subgenre of cab driver movies that we're unaware of? Like it's yeah. like nah, those cab driver movies. Those are for the kids. <laughs> Fuck those movies. Just hell cab. <laughs> Three in a row now that's made an appearance. I know. I love it. And I got it. Now I got to find that old PC disc. So another rando. Paul Schrader wrote this because he feared that this was the person he was becoming. So Bickle was based on a recurring character he was writing. He wanted to make a movie about called The Peeper. And The Peeper was this person, this outsider who lived out. He described him a character who was an outsider who looked through the windows of civilization and he couldn't get in. And that's who The Peeper was. And then it became apparent to him that this is cab life. He got into a New York cab and was like, that's who The Peeper is. Um, But it was so much so based on the feeling of isolation. He had had a divorce because I think he had an affair. The woman that he had an affair with kicked him out. He was alone living out of his car. He was just feeling very lonely, very isolated. He says that De Niro and Scorsese totally related to these lonely feelings. And he so much so was the archetype mentally for this role that he gave uh, Scorsese his boots, jeans, or he calls them dungarees, De Niro does, and his jacket. So in some of the scenes, I believe that he is wearing some of Strader's clothes. And that was kind of the starting point for him because, you know, De Niro is so method. He's such a method actor that he began wearing these clothes because those were the things that Schrader was wearing. And even though it really doesn't mean anything about his mental state, he wanted to really start to take on that character. So, and there are a lot of numbers. In fact, I feel bad. We've talked a lot about uh, in the past about other De Niro movies we've covered about how he, there's numbers out there that he drove a cab for months, that he drove a cab for years. Based on all the special features, and even Robert De Niro does not say the same amount twice in the special features. He says in one that he got back 10 days prior to filming and he started to drive a cab for 10 days and that's all he did. Albert Brooks says that he actually would take breaks. He was filming, I think, 1900 in Italy, and he would come back on his breaks when he wasn't filming, and he would drive cabs. I don't know what the number is, but I'm going to stick with De Niro saying that he got back. The minute they got done filming uh, in Italy, he came back and drove a cab for 10 days to prepare for this role, to learn how to drive a cab, what it was like being a cab driver during this time in New York. That's really cool, too, because he had just popped off with Godfather 2. 
and he had already agreed to do this film, and then when he blew up with Godfather Two, then they, the film came back to him. From my research, they came back to him and said, "Now we can't afford you." And he said, "No, no, no. I'm I, I'm going to honor my word. I'm going to do this for what I verbally committed to." So he just did it for whatever they. Have you guys watched the original trailer for this movie? No. Have you ever watched like? That's old... interesting to do though, because you get to see how the studio marketed a movie that's not yes. so marketable. They really played on De Niro portraying. They they called it like a bone chilling portrayal or something like that. And, and we're really hyping up his acting in it. And he was like the main point. They like never really, they mentioned Martin Scorsese, but like in passing, mm. like, oh, yeah, Scorsese, who cares? Because he it's wasn't like, him yet. I mean, yeah, nobody, like, nobody knew who he was. Mean the Street star was... of Godfather 2. And they go through all these different like movies that he had been in. And then uh, it's like Robert De Niro is the taxi driver. And it's like, if you watch old previews, sometimes they're kind of hard to stomach because it's they're real cheesy. Mm-hmm. Or like they didn't know how to like tee up a movie for the crowd. Man, and this one is good. Okay. Like, it's worth a three-minute YouTube perusal. And for the sake of the conversation today, for Fight Club, they didn't know how to market it, so they marketed it as, like, a sports movie. Fight Club, it sounds like a boxing movie, so that all the footage that they yeah. used in the trailers was very much about the Fight Club itself and not about what the yeah. film was actually about. Which is yeah, and even Norton and Pitt in interviews, like, they were, they struggled with how to market it, and so they said it was about a woman becoming to, coming between two people, is how they described it. Which, oh, weird. Which yeah, that that's a part angle of angle I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, but yeah it's like it's, there, kind of. Yeah, it's there, but you it's, want it to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sub rando too, and Drew, you kind of alluded to this. A guy got into the cab uh, when De Niro was driving and saw his license. And said, "Hey, aren't you the guy that just won the Oscar for Godfather 2? And then the the, <laughs> the the writer said, "He said, is it that hard to get an acting job?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think De Niro wow. did the special features. Goes, That's not a true story. I don't it's know, but De Niro story. tells the story, and he says his response was, "Well, yeah, it is." <laughs> That's <laughs> fucking awesome, amazing. <laughs> and we'll probably we'll probably get into this a lot through the podcast because Jodie Foster was like what 12, 13 in this movie. Um, the Board of Education didn't want Jodie Foster to get issued a, a work permit to play Iris because it was so risque. It was so they didn't want to be liable for you know her playing this role. So they had to get a lawyer involved that convinced the Board of Education. Surprise. So I think it's the the Board of Education and there's a couple of different, you know, organizations that oversee child acting, child child labor laws, the Department of Labor, I think, is involved. They actually had to do a psychological assessment to make sure that she was sane enough to play the part. Um, So they wanted to make sure. And I mean, when you watch her in a special feature, she seems like the sanest person alive. Yeah, I mean, she went on, obviously, to have a very, very long quality career. Incredible career. I mean, contact anyone. Yeah. Contact. Yeah. Yeah. And she seems a little brilliant. Like when she's talking, like I I didn't, I've not studied her a lot, but during a special features in her interviews, I'm like, she sounds like a brilliant person. Smart lady. Real yeah. smart. So the way that uh, Marty, my buddy, the way Martin Scorsese and Sybil Shepard wrote her lines was they got into a hotel room and Scorsese brought a 16 millimeter black and white camera and they just improved. And so he had kind of a script, but what he did was is he would they would just improv together and he ended up writing the lines they came up with into the script. So that's how he developed her entire dialogue. Oh, wow. Was just by doing a, on camera, he would record everything she said and he's like, okay, I'll put that in the script. So that's how he developed her lines. Huh. That seems so inefficient. Artist against artist, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a tiny rando, but Albert Brooks, he was cast, and he said that Martin Scorsese said to him, if you have a boring part, cast a comic. And so that's why he he put him in that role. Um, he was funny. legendary stand-up, legendary comedic actor at the time. He's not comedic in this role, and he, he talks about it being intentional, that he didn't want this guy to be, he didn't want this guy to be stand-up comic funny. He says word for word, I am funnier than this character, but that's not the point of this character. He wanted this guy to be the guy that is, thinks he's funny at work at the water cooler work that's boringly yeah. cliche funny oh case of the mondays he wanted to play him as that guy and he succeeds yeah i hate that character he's such 
a dweeb. He really is. And yeah. I'm a dweeb. <laughs> Wait a minute. So I hate other do dweebs. Do you hate yourself? What I the? Do. What are we getting at here? We're getting into a lot of methody stuff. Harvey Keitel is, I don't know, maybe more methody, actory. He was so good. I, I'm so glad he took this part because he originally was going to play Albert Brooks' part. Oh, weird. But he told, he read the script and told Scorsese, he's like, I want to play the pimp. And he actually had a small role, but they started to see little nooks and crannies and it expanded. So they kept adding scenes and scenes for him to play sport. He actually, there was a, he was a Broadway actor and he was doing a Broadway show and he, when he had gotten offered to play the pimp part, he knew this prostitute that stood outside of where he was doing the Broadway show. And so he walked up to her and pointed to the sign and said, hey, I'm this guy. He's like, I'm doing this part of a pimp. He's like, I don't want to use you for what you do, but I do want to learn about pimps and things. And so he paid her to just talk to him. And so that's how he learned. So he just had all these conversations with this prostitute and that's how he did a bunch of research to kind of learn how to play sport. This may be the coolest rando. The over the head shot at the end. That was shot in an abandoned building. They didn't do that in a studio. It was on 88th and Columbus. They spent three months drilling into the top, the ceiling, because if you recall the circular track of that shot when they're overhead. Yeah, it was quite a shot. Yeah, they couldn't do that naturally, so they spent three months drilling it to do that. What's funny though, earlier we talked about the Board of Education with Jodie Foster and the child labor laws and acting. These are the people that govern how long children can act. They can't do night shots. They have to be very governed while they're acting. They determined that after they did all this work for three months to do this final epic shot that she was only allowed to act for 20 minutes. <laughs> so they do three months of work, build a track, and if you get the chance to watch the Blu-ray of the special features, it's a literal circular steel track that they drilled in the ceiling and put in. I feel like it would have taken less time to build that room as a set. I don't know, man. They didn't have like a big the budget. Yeah, they just didn't have the budget. Go. That's why they did it in a condemned the drill building. drill is cheaper. Pay yeah. the guy like five bucks a day to go. <laughs> yeah, you're right, but they, they had a limited budget and they had to do it in a condemned building. So they do it for three months to build up to this final shot. Jodie Foster only gets to do it for like, we have 20 minutes to get Jodie in the shot. Unreal. Incredible. The mohawk is a prosthetic, so it's not real hair. It no looks way. great. It, it actually, yeah, it looks amazing. It looks great. You Talking to Me was unscripted. So it was, what they did was, is they so always, crazy, man. Uh, I know, with these great lines, right? Paul Schrader was talking to De Niro. De Niro said, how should I play this up? He says, act like you're a kid with a toy gun talking to yourself in the mirror. That was the direction he gave him. So him. good. Because all the script says is Bickle talking to himself in a mirror. It doesn't have any of those lines. Love it just it. says, Bickle talks to himself in the mirror. There's no lines. You could argue, not just one of the most epic lines in the movie, but maybe one iconic. of the- Iconic. I have to say iconic because I say iconic at least once Stratif- per episode. Stratospheric, as you would say about Michael Jackson. or. But yeah. yeah, I mean, that's legendary. And you know that an actor is salivating, or at least an, a- an actor with the chops of Robert De Niro sees that on the script and is like, oh, it is it's on. Time. And then he spent like probably three hours in front of his own in front of his own mirror just practicing shit throwing shit against mm-hmm. the wall and just seeing what happens people quote that line all the time and, and very likely have no idea where that quote it's is one of those from. well the guy who it, knows that all the special feature things definitely knows where that comes <laughs> yeah. from but oh. it is one of those quotes though where it's like more famous than the original yeah than the source yeah totally it's one of those just well, crazy lines. it's like the jaws theme song it's like lived beyond jaws like totally that dun, dun, you know what i mean like it's how a, many yes. people joked you talking to me i mean i know my parents exactly. would joke like that like you talking to me and when i before i you talking text, to me well i don't see anyone else here and last rando here about taxi driver the only way they 
on Taxi Driver? <laughs> Let's <laughs> get the fuck on. I know. I don't have that many fight clubs, I promise. Did any of you guys notice how the, the blood wasn't really blood colored at the end? It was kind of orangish. Orangish. Yeah, I mean, blood in Hollywood never yeah. really looks like real blood anyway. That's not how it was filmed. The blood. That's a great movie title, by the way. Blood in Hollywood. Blood I would totally, definitely pay money to go see that. Movie Dude, you see Blood in Hollywood this weekend? <laughs> but the, the reason that that blood is orangish is because it actually was normal, like very red, very, you know, like normal blood color, but this is the only reason they kept the R rating because they wanted to push them. I think this is before there was NC-17, so it would have been X because that scene was so violent at the time and it was they were like, the only way that you can do that is if you desaturate the color. So the reason the blood looks orange and not like a true red color like blood is is because they desaturated the color of the film to keep their R rating because if it would have looked too red, it was way too violent. And they actually in the special features have photographs of what it looked like before they desaturated. And it is very, it's different. It, it looks a lot more real, a lot more violent. All right, Rando's about Fight Club. Jared Leto, that scene was actually, can you imagine this, more grotesque originally. When he beats the shit out of him? Yes, him? when I want to yeah. destroy something beautiful. Great quote. Hard to imagine that scene being more brutal because his teeth, I don't know about you guys, but nothing makes me sicker watching movies. I'm pretty good with movie violence, but if teeth are broken and they're showing it, that, thro that throws me off. But yeah, yeah, even when Norton was like brushing his teeth and he ripped the teeth, it was like, damn it. Yeah. Like, yeah, I hate like, that. What? Not worth it. Yeah. And what, what did Pitt say? Like something, even a rose loses its petals or, or what did he say? Something. Of, oh, even the Mona Lisa. That's what it was. Yeah, that's actually yeah. a line from the book. Even the Mona Lisa's falling apart or. Even the Mona Lisa hasn't been fucked like that since grade <laughs> school. <laughs> that's a random I took out because I just didn't want to go down that road. Wait, the abortion line? Yeah. The original line was. I want to have your abortion. What, during the sex, she was saying that in this movie, he says, she says crazy shit like last night she said, I, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. That was the cleaned up version. The original version was, I, she said shit like, I want to have your abortion. Yeah. And, the wow. and the studio head was like, whoa, like you, we cannot, yeah. you cannot keep that. that was, I feel like that would actually fly these days. And Fincher said, okay, I'll change it as long as you won't edit my next one. And Dude, he, I and would he say agreed. the grade school so the, one was, <laughs> follow -up was, the it grade was school. worse. It's like abortion or like child molestation. Child yeah, either way, it's dark. So the abortion anyway, line edit is, all of that out. That was directly from the book, the abortion It's a great line. rando. I mean, it's not our yeah. fault. We didn't make that up. Jared Leto, so the reason the scene was actually more gruesome is because his face originally was split in half. So not <laughs> only was he losing teeth, but his head, and there was a blood bubble that was supposed to like pop on his face, which was from the book. That scene was even more grotesque in the book, but another rando, Rosie O'Donnell, leave it up to her, she spoiled the big twist on her show. You what read about this? Yes. That's why no one likes her anymore. I know. It's not she, why no you're going to love this one. She not only spoiled it, but before she spoiled it, she shat on the film on her show. So she says, I hated the movie, don't go see it, and she spoils the big twist. And then in the special features, if I may, in the special features, Pitt said that that was unforgivable. I agree. That's Hollywood attacking Hollywood. Even Brad Pitt was like, that's unforgivable. It is unforgivable because you are you have a captive audience and you're forcing them to have a piece of entertainment that somebody, I mean, what a selfish thing to do. Yeah, also, you're just someone who sits and talks about movies on a talk show. Like, go fuck yourself. Go talk about something that's not. Well, dude, Rosie O'Donnell always had a personal agenda about everything and like to take somebody's work that they've poured millions of dollars and, and thousands of hours into and with that cast as big as it was to do something like that to an audience that was going to go see that movie. That's just that. That's like
looks yeah. super malicious. Especially in a movie where the twist is the movie. What a piece of shit. And David Fincher's thing is twists. I'm, it's fine if you want to say you didn't like the movie. And even if you wanted to say I didn't you like say, the, I didn't like the ending. But don't I didn't be like a, the, there was a twist. I didn't care for it. Whatever you want to say. It. But don't tell people not to see it and also spoil the yeah. movie. Don't be a piece like, of shit. It's like if she went up there and said, oh, by the way, Bruce Willis in Sixth Sense, he's dead. Well, you just <laughs> did that. So, but yeah, the movie's been out for 20 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Fuck whatever, yourself, so. Reddit. Not even a real word. Reddit barely skimmed it. I love it when directors do this. So David Fincher in the scene where the very first time that Ed Norton and and uh, Brad Pitt fight, you know, when it's like kind of that pe- he punches him in the ear. Pitt thought he was going to just give him a light punch on the shoulder. Fincher, though, whispered in Norton's ear to punch him in the ear. And so Pitt's reaction is actually real because he didn't know he was going to get punched oh, in the ear. Oh, and so in the ear. That yeah. phrase was a natural reaction wow, for Brad Pitt. So interesting. It's kind of wow. like in Die Hard with Alan Rickman when they drop him at the end, you know, when he dies and they, they were going to, on three, we're going to drop you on the map, but they actually dropped him on two. And so his reaction is, I love uh, it. Director's pulling shit, man. Oh. I would hate that, by the way, as a person that is, <laughs> I don't like risk. Yeah, I don't like Same. surprises. Yeah. This is the weirdest rando. And this, this really goes back to David Fincher's style. We talked about his style, but you know the scene where he's trying to go into his dreamland and the penguin and the ice cave is going on? Yes. The breath. Uh, I can't remember if it's Marla. Like I think, oh, it's Marla's breath is CGI'd from Titanic. I don't know why. <laughs> Would they like superimpose a, f- yeah. a frame from Titanic when they're over? floating and the breath is and they're floating on the door? He superimposed. Good word. The breath from that movie onto Marla. That's weird. Same studio, I guess. I don't know. No, that uh, to me sounds like some kind of like Easter egg. Like <laughs> you know, like. But like, how would you have the rights to Titanic. that? I don't know. They called it remixed. Footage. They said visual effects remixed the cloud puff. Of air from. I'm glad you used that term correctly so that some famous fucking director that does HBO shows doesn't come on our comment section and nut all over, you know, the fact that this is a, everybody, this is a live podcast. We're just sitting, way, we're not sitting here reading scripts, okay? Yeah. Can we just talk about the, the fact that that guy talked about our podcast? Yeah, yeah. The creator of Billions, if you didn't know, came on and corrected me. I did say, I did say something wrong because I posted a live cut from the pod. We drink bourbon on this thing. I said one word. I knew what I meant. <laughs> he said something really pompous like, what, what did he say? Not improv, create. It or created. Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, great. You're a and professional and we written, have a podcast. Not improv. Thanks for yeah. reminding us that you're the pro. You know, go fuck yourself. Yeah. I know I was wrong. We drink on this podcast. It's live. We have fun. We're not critics. We're fans. And also, I, to put it in the yeah. words of Tony Horton, sometimes I say push ups when I mean pull ups. Sometimes I say pull ups when I mean push ups. Yeah. Who cares? Just do the work. Yeah. Shout out to Beachbody. Yeah. yeah. Just a couple more randos here. Meatloaf, his fat suit was filled with 100 pounds of birdseed. Yeah. <laughs> That's I also how, heard he had nine, like a nine-inch lift. Like, yeah, he was way taller because he was he wore a lift. Like he, wow. like, that's amazing. Stilts. And can we just talk about the fact that it's meatloaf? <laughs> I know that that was really <laughs> funny to me. <laughs> I would do. We can just talk about we had meatloaf and Jared Leto, lead singer of Thirty Seconds of Mars, in this movie. That's yep. pretty impressive. You wonder how he felt about that, but apparently he was a good sport about it. Apparently, after the film was done, he sent a a framed photo of when Norton's face is pressed in his breasts. Mm-hmm. That scene, or he sent this picture framed to Edward Norton as a gift and it said with hugs love me dude Fincher says he was a good sport loved it had dude, a blast his name is he calls himself meat he did a great How can job you not be a good sport I feel like your your whole existence yeah. is being a good sport didn't he do a great job though he was, a, he was great such a weird character in general we're yeah. not going to go down the easter egg rabbit hole but there are a couple that are worth mentioning rapid fire let's you get. see Tyler Durden five times before he's actually yes. in the movie yeah little they, flashes they have the, the whole you can see him so there, there's splices you know the part where he splices porn into the movies. Well, when he's talking
talking about that. You see There him. are four subsequent scenes where Tyler Durden is spliced into the movie. Before what? you notice before that? Before you ever see There him. are frame drops in the film where it's yeah. like, he's looking and you see just a, it's it's literally a frame spliced yep. into the film of him. During the AA meetings or during the recovery meetings, there's one where they're, I think they're at the hospital. There's four scenes. Like unrelated to the storytelling, Correct. Just, you just see a frame. There, I think it's one twenty-fourth yeah. of a frame is what I read it. You see it though. Like yeah. it's very strange. If you don't know, like say you're watching that movie for the first time, your brain would just assume it was like you're seeing things. That's how quickly it moves. And also huh. before you meet Durden officially, they do a, you know how he's a waiter for that company for I think the hotel or whatever. Is it the hotel? Is he a hotel waiter? Or Ye I think so, yeah. There's a commercial and he's in the commercial. Weird. He's in the middle. So before you ever even meet Tyler Durden, he's wow, he's there. So man, that's cool. There's five little things. Um, you know the one of my favorite scenes is that brutal scene where he's fighting Lou, the bar owner who comes down. And he's like, yes. What the fuck are you doing? Um, you can't see it if you don't you have to look for it. But when he punches Durden in the stomach really hard, you can see Edward Norton, the narrator, bend over at the same time. So no that's way. kind of the that's first so illusion that you have that they're connected, that they're the same person. So when Lou, the bar owner, punches Durden, Edward Norton hunches over at the same time. I love as Durden. that. So many good pair. Like it makes you want to watch the movie again. It does. There's a Starbucks cup in nearly every scene, even though they're talking about corporatism and thing. That's a funny fact. David that's wild. Because I was thinking about how, because they mentioned like, you know, rolling that piece of corporate art down into a corporate coffee shop. You just mm. think Starbucks. Like, how could you not? So that's interesting. I, but I didn't notice the cups. Yeah, it's in nearly every scene. There's a Starbucks cup. PSA, everyone drink from your local coffee shops. Don't go to Starbucks. Yeah, they don't. burn their shit and it's yeah. disgusting. I drink I, local Starbucks blows. All right. Anyway, also fuck you, Starbucks. Tastes like I grew up a giant Seinfeld fan. My childhood crush was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who played Elena. She was one of the original considerations for the no. role of Marla. That's a respectable crush, for one. And two... Yeah, she is. She's uh, smart. That, I, that's cool. I like that. I like that. She's cute. Um, Never in a million years. I don't believe that. I did. Had a huge crush. Still do. No, no, no. no I'm saying she I don't was believe an that she was considered for Helena Bottom. No, you like what you oh. oh, sorry. I was like, how dare She's you? She's like the sweetest, most wonderful girl next door. Yeah. Like, she wouldn't pull yeah, that off. Yeah, but just think about who else had that vibe and then it turns out he's a big old pervert, Bob Saget. He's the dad. Like, everybody's but like... But in real life, not in any... Yeah, yeah I know, but dude... I mean, but, I see what you're putting down. Yeah. But that's not even the funniest part of this rando. David, she had no idea who David Fincher was. <laughs> so apparently when they talked to her, she was like, who is David Fincher? <laughs> and mm. David Fincher was quoted saying he felt like a quote-unquote fucking loser. Yeah, sure. When, Gian, when, when she had no idea who he was. <laughs> dude, it just goes to show, man. It's like, you're going to be who you are in front of the people you're gonna be who you are in front of and blah 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 and all that yep. doesn't make any sense um she knew who Larry David was though that's for yeah, damn sure yeah and Veep. she was like Fincher yeah barely, hardly birded her barely in the face barely flipped yeah. her flipped the bird barely yeah. sevened her oh, barely social wait. networked her shall we war <laughs> or shall we fight finally let's fucking let's war club. the first rule of God. movie wars I'm I'm sorry guys the randos are fun I'm we're an hour and a half in by the way what's the first rule of movie wars the first rule of movie wars is that you do the scorecard as fast as you can because Kyle did too many randos today because yeah. Taxi, Taxi Driver is my favorite film, of course. You know what the second rule of Movie Wars is? What? Fuck you, Reddit. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> that is big. And Starbucks. Best top bill cast. True. Star fucks. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And you got to do your job. So I, uh, my, my internet is down at the studio today, so I have actual... 
paper. Paper Listen, here. Kyle printed that off. So top bill cast, we'll say for Fight Club is Brad Pitt and Ed Norton. For Taxi Driver, we'll say it's De Niro and Foster. Perfect. And Sybil Shepard. If it were just like best actor, I would say De Niro. But if you have to include Jodie Foster and Sybil Shepard with Ed Norton, to me, it goes Fight Club. I mean, you got Brad Pitt, who is kind of, this is kind of prime Brad Pitt. Probably not like his best performance ever, but prime like Pitt. this is like the heart and soul of his career he right now. He's carved out of fucking cement. And has movie. anyone, uh, yeah, I mean, no one's ever been sexier than Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Oily and shredded. And just like the red leather jacket and the spiky hair and the sunglasses. Like. And Ed Norton, I, he just puts out this like cerebral intellectual vibe. Watching him act, you know there's some shit going on in his head that you don't know about. So I, I'm going to go Fight Club on this. Phil. Fight Club in the third round, easy. I mean, pretty much what Drew said. Brad Pitt, tough to go against him. Look like he was carved out of a block of ice or whatever Incredible. hard object you want to fucking use. Negative on ounces of fat. Why don't you tell me on Reddit? Um, <laughs> and yeah, Ed Norton is, he's always amazing except in the Hulk. So, yeah. <laughs> and I hate to go against my favorite film of all time right off the bat. You know, De Niro is probably my favorite actor. Um, it's pretty incredible the preparation he had for this, but I, I want to go with what Drew said. You know, Brad Pitt for so long was Legends of the Fall, A River Runs Through It. He was kind of the pretty boy, did the dramas. He made this crazy transition to 12 Monkeys where he's absolutely insane. And then he does Fight Club and he's insane. And yeah, he's always pretty sexy. I'm straight as an arrow, but that dude is sexy as hell. Let's all get for those abs. But I just love his arc. I actually don't love Norton in this movie. I like him, but I do feel like they could have picked somebody better. I'm just not sold on Norton. As <gasps> Disagree. I, I know. I know that's a hot take. I think he's sneaky good as the narrator. Is it the voice or what is it? Like, what is it for you? I'm just curious. I don't know. He's just kind of like this like snarky, cynical. Like, yeah. yeah. It feels very, it's kind of of the time. I got yeah. like, I got like David Chandler Spade on Friends. Like if Chandler oh. on Friends or David Spade yep. or somebody yeah. was like talking about the world at the time like yeah. just kind of like that cynic. How would thing. Robert Downey Jr. have done in this role? He would have been too. That's I feel who like came to mind. I, he would have been too. Yeah. That's or, who uh, I wanted for. What's it. the guy on West Wing? This, the more snarky guy. Like it's just like of that time, okay. that late '90s. That was a definite vibe. There was like yeah. a cynic on each cast. And I feel like Edward Norton was perfect thing. though because he was so he felt so opposite of Brad Pitt in that movie. Like Brad Pitt was like suave and badass and all this stuff, and Edward Norton just wasn't. And that was perfect in my opinion yeah brad pitt is enough i mean and it's hard to say that you know if it's really just brad pitt versus de niro but just brad pitt in this movie he just i love how he moves from seven to this movie and i just love how he reestablishes himself yeah and then you know and then eventually we get to once upon a time in hollywood with him he is a he's so well-rounded he is he and he's he's got a better acting vocabulary than de niro does meet joe black yeah there you go well fight club up one zero all right round two here we go best supporting cast phil you want to kick us off this time that's a hard one too because like if there could be a tie this would be the one to give it to I think I go uh, taxi driver here because of Harvey Keitel being a supporting actor mm -hmm. and Albert Brooks and did we say Sybil Shepard I don't even know but yeah, she's supporting there's a huge very robust supporting cast in Fight Club too with Jared Leto um, Meatloaf I mean Meatloaf wasn't really much of an actor but he was still Meatloaf but I think I still go taxi driver here mostly because of Harvey Keitel doing his Harvey things I like really. taxi driver here because of the like 
like the three other drivers that he's like meeting up with at the diner. Oh, yes. Like outside of the. They were great. Yeah. I just, I believed them as contemporary 1970s taxi drivers. I mean, and Pete, shout out to Peter Boyle. Everybody loves him on Everybody Loves Raymond, but I just really enjoyed those guys. So I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go taxi driver. You actually took the words out of my mouth with, with Peter Boyle. Um, I love, this is a part of the movie I didn't fall in love with until I actually saw it in the special feature, saw Boyle talking about it. You know, he approached that role like he was a sage, like he he was the wise one. And even though the advice he gives is horrible in that world of that time in New York where murder is insane and crime is insane and getting laid was good advice. He's like, you know, just get laid. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that was It'll like, just, yeah, get that evil juice right out of you, you know? And then you know how funny it is because what is Robert De Niro's, re Travis Bickle's reaction? He's, he doesn't say anything for a few seconds and then he goes, you know, that's the craziest thing. You got Travis Bickle telling you the advice you gave <laughs> was the craziest thing he's ever heard. Yeah, that so, should humble you a bit. Boyle does great. Brooks is great. It's tough though. I mean, I do give it the taxi driver, but the the pro when Project Mayhem becomes full fledged in Fight Club, they they sell that thing, you know, because they start to once Edward Norton as the narrator starts to ask a lot of questions before he realizes he's Durden. What what do they start saying? Like, you know, well, we knew you would say that, or you said yeah. you would say that too. I feel like everybody sells you it. You said you would say that, sir. Yeah. And like he goes to the police, and the police are in on it, and it just shows like what he has accidentally built. Yeah. It's just so far reaching. Everybody everybody does that. Does it so well? And and let's talk about Marla too. Helen Bonham Carter, she is Marla. She owned this role in a way that no one else could have ever done this role. And, and as great as an actress as she is, when I think of her, I think of this role. She is Marla. When I read the book, it was one of the few times where I was like, she is this person that I read in the book. Like that doesn't always happen. So I give it to Taxi Driver slightly, but I do I do want to say that she was phenomenal. She sold disgust. But she's yeah, she's typecast a lot, but it's perfect mm -hmm. always. Like she always plays that kind of sort of unhinged wonderfully like, weird yeah like wonderfully like weird. crazy but not like yeah wonderfully like, weird is hair's perfect. always a little messy and like yeah. too much eyeshadow even like the later harry potter movies i mean she played that role perfectly yeah and it was she was just she's always nailed that vibe she's she's brilliant and the way she smokes and the makeup and yeah. the pale makeup and really to me she showcased in the in the meetings at the beginning when you mm -hmm. first meet her oh yeah fantastic when they describe her he describes Ooh. her as a cancer and she kind of look I, I hate to say it but like she looks like cancer <laughs> like her dark hair her gothic makeup she's yeah. smoking in these cancer meetings she's literally smoking yeah. in these cancer emotional recovery meetings like she's so etched in my mind in that role yeah. I mean why do you guys feel like from a storytelling perspective the therapy scenes were such a huge part of the beginning of the movie like it just seems like that he went to like 87 different kinds of meetings and they were like jockeying about which meetings each other could go to and then like that just went away and then the movie was something I, else I think it, it was, was just too, like, what just, the fuck are why, why did we spend 30 mm -hmm. minutes going to... It was to kind of just establish a perspective on the character, I think, like that he was that lonely or that purposeless or that numb that he had to go experience other people's pain. You know, and a lot of the main characters in the movie come out of that and stuff. So it was, to me, it was more of just a device. It was like, a, it was an interesting way to introduce a lot of characters because they could have just introduced mm. him. But it was an interesting way that yeah, yeah. tied into the movie and tied into his mental state. So to me, it was like, it was like an elaborate set piece that worked you know what i mean yeah and it seemed like it dragged on like it was fine mm. at the time and then once i got to the end of the movie i'm like why do we waste so much time? i don't know if this was the goal either but to me it was almost kind of mocking the therapy thing a little bit yeah well the whole movie i guess like was, I, I didn't realize that at the moment when those scenes were happening but once i got into it with project mayhem i'm like oh this is like satire kind of making fun of a yeah. lot of shit in
shit in that movie yeah. brutally. Because <laughs> like, the, the point of the movie isn't that you need emotional reprieve. You need rugged masculinity to survive. Yeah. You need rugged masculinity to save humanity. Yeah, and it was also to establish that these guys had been so emasculated that they're sitting in these meetings crying. Yeah, even Meatloaf. I mean, you want to be a fat man with tits? Like, yeah. That's yeah. kind of like it went there. Yeah. You've covered everything, I would say, but the one thing I would add, and, and, and you get this from the book a little bit, is that it, it's not a completely nihilistic movie because they are, in their minds, they are destroying society to rebuild something better. So in a, in a way, there is hope, and nihilism is not a philosophy of hope. But to me, it's the point where you see the nihilism is where they're dividing, they're in the laundromat. I think it's, they start off in the laundromat, but then she goes and sells the clothes she steals, and he's following her yeah. around talking, that scene. And they start to split up the groups, like their pocket change. I think that is supposed to express the idea that we are ants in an ant, like on an ant hill, and we can treat other people's suffering with triviality to the yeah. point of selfish selfishness. Like, we're going to use this to help ourselves. We're going to use other people's suffering to give ourselves reprieve. And they use that that mechanism of when they're literally like, well, you take Tuesdays and Thursdays. Well, no, I love parasites. I'll take parasites. Like, they're literally taking the suffering. I mean, how many people are in those recovery groups? 10, 20? Yeah. They're taking those people's suffering and literally making it minuscule. Yeah, they're just trivializing it yeah. to the max. So I think... Like, it's entertainment and, like, mm -hmm. it's their own form of bizarre sideways therapy. Like, they're yes. getting therapy from people experiencing therapy. It, and it really is that orchestration yeah. of nihilism and hu human selfishness and that desire to survive at any cost. Yeah. That's my opinion. Uh, I don't think you're wrong. But you both you both nailed it. I mean, you literally said everything I'd want to say. So, great question. All right, we're tied one to one right now. Weirdest relationship, Tyler Durden slash Jack and Marla or Bickle and Betsy. And whoever, whoever the weirdest relationship wins here. It's pretty hard to not go Jack and Marla. Yeah. Uh, wait. Well, it's Why weird. Do we call it's, it's weird. I am Jack. It's weird. IMDb calls him Jack, but he is the narrator. He doesn't yeah. have a name. So we'll call him Tyler Durden slash the narrator and Marla or Bickle and Betsy. Yeah, the Marla relationship solely because he is like totally dissociated nailing this woman and doesn't even realize he's doing it and thinks it's another guy that's his friend who lives in his house with him. So he's like having a, a relationship with someone he doesn't even know he's having it with and then who, who he detests and wants her to leave all the time. It's like some schizo relationship with this. I don't know how you you don't go that route. True. Yeah, it's like psychotic fuck buddies. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's For everything you said, I agree. Fight club. I mean, it's not yeah. even close. Yeah. I actually did go taxi driver here only because it is so far-fetched. You're that, wrong! That Betsy would go with Bickle. I mean, she's... I don't think so. Women do weird shit. You ever seen, like, a super hot girl with, like, some sloppy-looking motherfucker? Okay, well, I've, you're gonna relate to this. You're a clean person. You're you're cleanly. You're, you're like, order. Yeah, don't you think Bickle smells? When you look at him in the movie, there's no yeah, way no that doubt. dude doesn't have a stench. She but maybe her dad smell. smelled though, and that's she's into that shit. You never. You know. think bo is a is a trait? It was Dude, New York in the seventies. Everything stunk. How yeah. was she to know if it was him that's or a good just point. the yeah. climate? And, and we'll get into how stinky New York was. I yeah, do have some statistics. She's up for that there, for later you know, representing Emperor Palpatine or whatever. The yeah, fucking Palatine. Yeah. We the people. Yeah. We are the people. All right, two to one, Fight Club. Oh, I love this category. Best finale, the Bickle shootout in the in the brothel or the blowing up at the credit building. This is, this is, I know we have a lot more categories to go, but this is my favorite. That's a really good category. I'll go ahead and kick off. Is that okay? Please. Please don't kill me, Fight Club fans. I love you, but I read the book. The ending in the book is better. Here's the reason. I've been in the technology industry. Destroying the credit buildings in and of itself is not going to destroy debt. Nope. <laughs> 
If any company has a superb technological infrastructure of backup and disaster recovery where all those debt records are kept, it is the freaking credit card industry where the margin rate is 95% because they literally, their margin is based completely on the debt of people. There you go. Okay. Soapbox. Yeah. Destroying those buildings is a metaphor, but you have to... Human fat soapbox? Oh! Oh! This is the human soap soap bad of women's asses being sold back to them. Yeah, love it. That was one of the best (laughs) lines ever. That is great quote. And that's one of my points, actually. We have all this effort going into this finale and everything I'm seeing in Fight Club, I'm just mentally and philosophically being challenged. The acting is great. They're building up everything. And I don't know about you guys, but it was a bubble waiting to burst. Like, how are they going to finish this off? It was something as basic as knocking down some buildings. And I get it. Like, I get the metaphor, but it doesn't... I I actually agree with you. It doesn't matter. Like, I, I know, and I know we're suspending belief, right? We have suspended so much belief up until this point. You're suspending disbelief. Or suspending disbelief up until this point. But yeah. I got there and it, it kind of ruined it for me. And also him shooting himself, you have to really understand what he's doing there. And and the yeah. first couple of times, and I'm not trying to tote my own horn, but I, I do a lot of research and I read a lot. You have to kind of pick up on the fact that the reason that Durden dies in that moment is because it's not because he's shooting himself because he only hits his cheek. It's the same in the book and it's the same in the movie. He's not hitting his brain because he would have died. It's because he has suspended his loneliness. You got it. You remember how Durden keeps saying, you need to lose everything. You need to get to the bottom of the barrel. That's the moment when he does it. He's willing to kill himself to prevent this from happening. And that is the lowest of lows. That's why Durden dies. But you got to really be fucking on brand to get it. And also, destroying these buildings isn't destroying debt. Do you think these companies in 1999, before Y2K, that they don't have these records backed up? It's a metaphor and it's fine. And I get the metaphor, but the metaphor is not strong enough. Experian was storing people's social security numbers and and raw text documents. Yeah, in people's garages, literally. So anyway, I I hate to say it, the shootout is too good. I'll go quick. I I agree for different reasons, not so much for the data backup thing, but I just think it was a little, (laughs) I just think it was a little heavy handed to actually physically destroy buildings and show like, especially uh, this happened two years later, but like in this very 9-11 fashion of these buildings collapsing in on themselves. Pre-9-11 though. Pre-9-11. Yeah, yeah, a little bit It was, I think even then that was a little, a little tasteless, but you know, the movie, uh, there's also a line in the movie that says I haven't been fucked like that since I was in grade school. So Triviality. The taste is gone already. I I like Taxi Driver's ending better just because it's more interesting. It's a lot more on brand and it's less sensational. Like it's believable that he rolls up in that building and shoots a bunch of people and accidentally kills a mob boss versus that was a pretty overly sensational ending. And are we also to believe that the entire skyline of wherever the fuck they are is just credit card buildings? Like, And that's a grassroots effort. Also data backup, guys. Yeah. Data fucking yeah, backup. Yeah, I mean, the, the emotional payoff of Fight Club is fun. It's like, whoa, that's mm. what he was up to? That's crazy. But that felt like an alternative ending. It did. Yeah. It, yes. It felt like, yeah. that's not that's what a, this movie was building towards. Like, yeah, he had never right. really mentioned, like, he wasn't, like, an explosives expert or, like, a, like, it just, and forgive me, I've only seen this once recently, so there yeah. might have been no, no, stuff happening, but I didn't on. really get the sentiment that that's what it was building towards. It was, yeah, it was a little too it wasn't like the icing on the cake it was a complete left turn yeah whereas i think i get the sense that taxi driver was building towards that you kind of just felt like that was kind of where yeah this is where this man's story ends and that totally makes sense and it's beautiful because he saved this girl but it's so sad because he's gonna do it again and he didn't really know what he was doing and like it just that to me from an artistic storytelling standpoint taxi driver takes 
it. No question. Also, whereas anyone who's Fight ever... Fight Club felt like an easy, just like, oh, this would be crazy. Yeah, oh, blow up its whole skyline. Yeah, yeah. yeah it doesn't make sense. Also, yeah. I, d- I will say it was a little eerie watching those buildings go down just because it was very much like, it just looked like the 9-11 yeah. towers falling. Like, yeah, which... Two yeah. years prior. It reminds me of The Matrix when his like freaking like passport the expiration date. It was just, it's weird to watch when time is a reality reflects art because obviously art reflects reality all the time but the other way when it's the other way around yeah. it's like ooh that makes me feel weird well even in in the late 80s early 90s McTiernan you know changed the source material of Die Hard even before 9-11 he didn't want to focus Plain on hijacking. terrorists he wanted yeah. to focus on bank robbers because he said you just can't make light of terrorism well because terrorism was it, 9-11 didn't necessarily bring terrorism into the limelight it's one of the more memorable mass terrorist acts in history but like there was a lot of really awful you know large scale terrorism going on around the world throughout all of those decades I mean at that point there had already been an attack on the Twin Towers and we had Oklahoma in City in the early 90s and Oklahoma and City we, where that whole facade of the building came off blow up we've just seen it and especially in our generation and it's just hard to watch wow. in yeah. Oklahoma City I was younger so that was I mean, I'm maybe not trying that's to... why that was such a chilling payoff for me to watch because yeah. like to your point our, our generation we grew up when I was six I saw the Oklahoma City bombing thing it was just that's kind of scarred and it's seared hard. under our consciousness. Totally. Buildings going down is just a no, I can't do it. And you're right, it was kind of lazy and, and, and I'll t- I know I already went, but I'll tack on with Taxi Driver. The clunkiness of that scene is why it works. It's very it's, realistic. Well, it's believable. It's not over the top gun. It's not John Wick gun foo. It's very much a guy who, yes, he's military trained, but he's, it's a clunky scene. He's not, glor- even though they're kind of glorifying violence, he's not glorifying the act because he does it in such a clunky way. He fails at it. He gets yeah. shot in the neck. Um, yeah. They, they do it in a way that's very believable. Like, yeah, I totally. believe that this is a cab driver shooting a pimp. Like, I get it. Like, this, totally. that's what this looks like. Um, so, yeah, taxi driver. So I have to go and go into a stat for this category because I um, I was curious about... It's about Arnold, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so I was reading... So in 1976, when Arnold's dick was <laughs> nine inches long... I was, reading, <laughs> I was reading the autobiography of Arnold, and it made me ask this question. Now, the category is, where would you want to live the least? The crime-ridden New York City uh, that's depicted in Taxi Driver or the Paper Street House uh, Soap Company. Paper uh, Street House, yeah, soap hands company, down, hands disgusting. Down. That is the, the ugliest, most disgusting, repulsive place <laughs> so, I've ever seen in film history. Yeah. Um, so, Drew, you want to kick us off? Where do you want to live? To me... New York, mm-hmm. hands down. That house is disgusting. Dude, that's At least the in New York, you have I've the option seen. of choosing a house that's not as disgusting. You could live on the subway and it'd probably be cleaner than that fucking house. So who wins that? I wrote it down as where you'd want to live least, but um, I think we should give it to Taxi Driver. So, you know, the better You want place to, to live in New York, Taxi yeah. Driver wins. Yeah, this is easy. I would rather almost get shot on the street every night. <laughs> Every single night. And this boils down to one thing. I'm not going to brush my teeth with brown water. No. I'm just not going to do it. That was so gross. And that bathtub scene. Yeah. Who cares? Your teeth are riding out because you've had them punched in Also, I'm not going to sleep on that mattress, man. Also, that was- like, here's your room. And he goes in a disgusting, cum-filled, you know, flea-ridden mattress that he sleeps on. Also, the first tell that that he was a hypothetical, like, imaginary character is no one that sexy with hair like that and as clean and ripped- 
like he didn't yeah. have a gym nearby. He was hitting golf balls like at abandoned buildings. Like yep. nobody could look that good it's living true. there. Paper it's Street true. is in Connecticut, by the way. Had no idea. Really? I know. Weird. Paper Street. It felt like the Northeast, but it didn't. All right. We have a few more categories left. It's three to two. Taxi driver. This is really close, and I like this. This means we picked a good matchup here. Who would be the worst roommate? Travis Bickle or Tyler Durden slash the narrator? Phil, why don't you kick us off? I think Travis Bickle would be a way worse roommate. They're both bad for their own reasons, but I, I feel like I'd probably rather have, you know, weird, violent fun with my crazy roommate than mm. be terrified that he's going to piss in my cereal or, yeah. like, act out murder scenes in his, you know, mirror out of pure malice and hatred for everybody. So I'd, I'd have definitely be afraid of being stabbed to death in my sleep by Travis Bickle for, like, not putting the milk back in the fridge versus, you know... Well said. You know what I mean? Well said. Yeah. And I would say Travis Bickle because he has a job and he'd be gone most of the time. But he's only gone at night. He's not gone in the day. Oh, the category's worst roommate. So. Oh, worst roommate. I would say Tyler Durden slash narrator. Be a better because roommate. Because he'd be around all the time. Oh, I get it. Yep. Like, right. as an introvert, like, I would want my roommate to be at work during the day or if he works at night to be asleep all day so that I just... But he's not. To. He's working on his gunplay. You're actually challenging my answer because I was going to go Travis Bickle would be a worst roommate because the dude's like literally got that giant revolver watching talk show television during the day. It's like, yeah, can you not watch TV without your gun? It's like, can you just put the gun down and drink a beer like a normal person? But the thing is, is yeah, when, I mean, he'd go to bed soon after that. Yeah. Maybe. Or was that yeah. when he woke up? I don't know. Yeah, because he's but he mostly can't nice sleep shit. because he's he's got insomnia yeah. from the war. I don't know. This is tough. You're challenging me because I was thinking about Durden. His job is to constantly indoctrinate you with his anti-capitalism. This would be fun, you know. Yeah, golf I guess, balls but, at but then he pours acid on you. I feel like Bickle's crazy and unpredictable. Yeah, that's but true. Forgot he's about not going to pour acid on your hand. No, yeah, you're. I'm changing my answer. Bad. I actually was going to say Bickle was a worse roommate, but I'm. I no. I'll I'll lose on my hill all by myself. Woo! I'm not going to do acid on my hand, and I I don't want to be indoctrinated by my roommates. That's like a roommate saying, "Let me know when the dishes are clean or dirty." Durden's version of that is, "We're going to destroy credit yeah, bureau. We're going to blow up a credit card building." Hey, so, have you wired up that credit card building yet? It's like, listen, no. we split rent, but. I don't want to know what your thoughts are on everyday issues, okay? It's true. Thank you, nice yeah. Mr. Sexy Hair. This is the epitome, best music. Both um, of these movies, I'll kick off. This is Taxi Driver wins this all day long. It's just too epic, but the music in Fight Club- I actually is, hated it. Really? I thought it was perfect. And I thought it was, it, it was so stereotypical, crappy, late 90s, Chemical Brothers sounding. Chemical Brothers. shitty remix sounding music. Yeah. I hated it. But that Pixie song, as much as I hated the credit buildings blowing up ending, that Pixie song is epic and perfect. But man, that jazz score it's, it was so like, cause jazz is seen as this like free form purely American beautiful art or not beautiful, but mm -hmm. maybe like somewhat chaotic art. It, it just was this bizarre juxtaposition against the darkness of Taxi Driver. Like to yeah. me it like was an accent on that movie whereas like Fight Club to me was just super unimaginative. It was needle droppy. And what the music did, yes it was jazz but what did Herman do? Yes it was this it was almost overly sexy for a reason because it was yeah. kind of like this dramatic sexy, but then that dune, 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 dune. It was almost like yeah. he was experiencing waves of psychosis, the music experience. So yes, it was that sexy traditional saxophone, hmm. but then that do, 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 do. And was, then you were like, oh great. my God, what's happening? It, it matched his mental state. So yeah, Taxi Driver.
whatever. And what other soundtrack could you say? This city, this filthy fucking city over. Right, jazz music just feels like steam rising off the street. Yes. Why? Why is that true? It just goes together. And it's because of Taxi Driver, you think that. I think it literally- Maybe so. Because it's so iconic, it embedded in your mind that jazz and steam rising is the thing. Like, is that the reason? Like, is that you talking to me? Like, is that why anytime I see, like, steamy New York, like, urban cities and I hear a saxophone, like, it just feels right? Is that because of Taxi Driver? Like, is that movie this influential? You just made a killer point. And Scorsese, work with more composers because when you do, it's sick. Yeah. I love it. Or, you know, just keep rolling the Rolling Stones. Yeah, just keep playing, you know, do you hear me knocking? So, wow, Taxi Driver just wiped the floor on that one. (laughs) But that's because it's so good. That was the first, one of the first things I noticed when I first watched this movie was, is that saxophone? Is that jazz? Like, ooh, that is beautiful. Like, I just was a Yes, yes, flute. Oh, yes, flute. Two more categories. It's four to three. Taxi Driver by one. Scorsese versus Fincher. I mean, this is interesting, right? I mean, we have Fincher staking his claim every two years. Oh, man, I'm going to piss you off so bad. Go ahead. Piss me off. Start. Overall, I'd rather watch a Fincher film than a Scorsese film. I think... Doesn't shock me. Fincher's a goat. Scorsese, he gets a lot of love for making a lot of meh films. He's got a lot of iconic, huge films, but there's he is not as palatable and enjoyable of a director like ad nauseum as much as Fincher is to me. Fincher is like, you could sit down and get real cerebral with it, or you could pull back and drink a beer with it. There's a lot of play in that enjoyment factor. Scorsese is like, he does one thing really well, and that's kind of like the microscope on the shithead thing. And that's fine. But man, it's it's to me it's way less accessible. And he, I don't know, man. There's there's some there's a lot of just patterns in his movies that sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I think Pedal to the Metal. I'd rather watch a Fincher film than a Scorsese sure. film. Sure, I'm not pissed at that at all because, like I said, Fincher is one of the greats for this movie itself or career wise. I always struggle with the this. way I looked at it at this point in their career. Oh. So you have 76 early Scorsese. In both of them. Yeah, it's like the same point in both of them. Just like kind 20 of. But years Fincher removed. had seven in the game. Yeah, and no, Fincher's fin- further down the road. Okay, Scorsese, so that solidifies it for me. Scorsese had big boxcar Bertha, <laughs> and he had uh, Mean Streets. Well, let me let me come yeah, at it from streets. this standpoint. I think overall I agree with you. I would rather watch a Fincher movie. That said, for this movie matchup, I think The Taxi Driver is a better movie, because I would rather watch Fincher produce, I would rather watch his direction on The Game, mm-hmm. great movie, Seven, great movie, Social Network, great movie. I mean, he, he cranked mm-hmm. out hits left and right, but for this one, as good as it is, next to Taxi Driver, I just it, mm-hmm. I would I prefer Taxi Driver in general. So I'm gonna go. I don't know how to chalk that up. Yep, you're going Scorsese. Yeah, you you made some great points. And listen, Fincher is one of my favorites. Scorsese is my favorite, and Taxi Driver is my favorite film. But Fincher is a guy that I love because he has balls. You know, he wanted to yeah. quit because in Alien Three they ruined his vision. He then comes out with Seven, which is in my top fifty. I love that film. I love how he used Pitt. Pitt who was <laughs> That always catches me off guard. Top oh, yeah. 50. 50. Like, you say that like, like is a that a thing. joke? No, no. As if I'm an authority. It's 47 on my list yeah. of top 50. As if there's people out there clamoring to know what my top 50 I think there are. are, though, at this point. Well, as if, like, 50 movies. I mean, that's a lot of movies. Is yeah. it really saying anything if it's in your top 50? Oh, yeah. How many movies have been made? I mean, there's no Michael Bay films, if that tells you anything. Um, Ooh, there's some in mine. Oh. But I'm a cheap little We bitch. should do a side that's episode, why. by the way, of our... Because people do want to know what our favorites are at this point. Because I've got... Dude, my favorite favorites are all some shitty ass movies there you go y'all we should write a book yeah a movie wars top 100 movies oh fuck i would love it and just do it movies 
war. You heard it here first. Make it yeah. bright yellow. Yeah. I think there's there's a, there's a clamoring for that. All I do tens of people. But if I'm looking, <laughs> no. we'd sell dozens of copies. Seventeen thousand TikTok people. I don't know how many of those are bots though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's like our text. This is like our text conversation come alive. Yeah. This is going to be controversial, kind of along the lines of what Drew said. I would rather watch the game. I would for hella sure rather watch Seven. Seven in the game are superior to Fight Club. Thank you. They Seven is such... That movie changed me, though. It was a modern noir, and he turned Pitt from a Mod-war. pretty boy into this crazy, sadistic, you know, driven detective in this gritty setting. Fincher's done better work if he would have done the book ending I would have been all for Fight Club here but this ending's unforgivable to me I know that's I know that's really hard to say no I, I agree this is it's not a good ending it's unforgivable of stupid. an ending it's a cop out it doesn't go where the movie needs to go the book Palinick does it better I actually really enjoyed the ending okay well Drew no <laughs> I enjoyed it. You enjoyed I don't think it. it's a good ending from a filmmaker standpoint. It but I think just like the payoff of watching the buildings fall, I'm like, all right, fuck. Okay, roll the credits. I <laughs> will agree with you. It looks good. It was, there's, it was, fun. It was a fun ending. Him and Marla connect emotionally. Fun, yes. I, I will give you credit here. The line, you met me at a weird time in my life when he says that to Marla, that is That's, that is really good. That is great. That's the best part of that ending and that Pixie song. But the, Also, there was something that stood out to me. I'm always uh, There are always weird things in movies that stand out to me. Like in Jaws, my favorite scene is the zoom in on the face when he's sitting when the sheriff is sitting at the ocean um, hmm. one of my favorite parts of this movie is her portrayal of the shock when she runs up the stairs at the end and sees his face or when they're carrying her up the stairs and, and she runs up to him and she's like saying his name and she goes oh my god your face like the way she delivers that was perfect it was almost subtle shock she wasn't fully shocked well, right it was like, she kind of sells like, I feel like this it was is kind of normal for me but kind of weird someone go like, oh, your face no yeah. they'd be like oh my god what yeah. The fuck? Like there'd be this like shock horror surprise thing going on. And that's why she owned Marla. That's why there is yeah. nobody else that could play Marla. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Five to three. We almost got into a tie situation. I kind of wish we did, but it's five to three, but we're gonna finish it off. And and this is just I, it off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Because this is, and we're gonna, have, we're definitely gonna take on a couple of lighter films in the next go around, hopefully. But the most bleak. Which film is the most bleak? Both of these films, they're great, they're fantastic, Dude. they're two of the best of all time. But they do not leave you feeling like you want to open a cotton candy company. Okay, um, oh, man, I think most bleak goes to Fight Club just because it is. God, it's hopeless. The therapy scenes and just the sad, broken people there. There are moments that drill down to to the humanity behind some of this brokenness and it's just sad and hard to watch. Like I know it was kind of supposed to be funny in a way but it wasn't like the scene with the cancer woman Chloe. trying to solicit sex from and, Chloe. Yeah trying I to like solicit get laid. sex from somebody. She's just so desperate for it that she's like talking about like oh I've got lube and all this stuff. No one will have sex with me. It was me. just That's so what she says. sad man. Yeah. You're just exploring all these different like breakdowns in humanity like these people with horror like hey, had their testicles removed and so they have on hormones and their bodies are fucking betraying them. And then you've got these people who, who are dying of cancer who just like want the human touch again. And then the dark, awful house and like the using the liposuction fat to make soap. It was just like, that was a bleak ass movie. Very on the nose, as you would say, Phil. I think because Fight Club is satire and Taxi Driver is very much not, I, I would have to say Fight Club is more bleak just because it had that, it could go, it goes f- there. It could go further 
without having to give explanation. Yes. But you could also make the case if that taxi driver is not a, there's no joking. Like it's, it feels like a very real depiction of New York in the seventies. So you yeah. can make that case too. So I'll just go with how it made me feel, which leads me back to what just, or Phil just said. I think that Fight Club is more bleak just because there, it goes further. I agree with both of you. When I read Palinik, I, one of the issues I have is what I said earlier. Where is the satire, like the, the heartfelt satire, which satire, I believe as a comedian is a heartfelt notion. And where's the shock value? And the film kind of exasperates those things. I, I feel like I'm just continually shocked, you know, versus being philosophically challenged. Travis Bickle is a person I feel like I've met before. I don't know if you guys got oh, that. totally. But sometimes in those scenes, I'm like, God, I feel like I've met people like that. I feel totally. like I've met cab drivers like that or yeah. Uber drivers. I was like, gosh, you, I feel like I've met you before. And mm, you're like 237 rides away from blowing a building up. Exactly. <laughs> and one half yeah. a star reduction. Yeah, in I was going to say, you're rating. a bad rating and no tip away from, you know, you know, lighting up half a downtown. But because of that, you know, because of that, I, I relate to it as someone that has anxiety, as someone that I take Zoloft, you know, like half of this country. Um, you know, they're, they're, the mental, the mental, I'm not, huh? not laughing at you, just like, like half of this country. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, but the mental health thing is that it's an up and down thing. And, and I feel like Fight Club is so trying to drive home this idea that this is really a worthless exercise. It's an exercise in, in quasi nihilism. If we can just destroy, we can rebuild. I do think the the means at which it achieve it wants to achieve hope is is completely derivative. And it's and I think the like we talked about with the meeting groups, it's very reductive the going into these meetings and literally leeching off of these people suffering it. It's way too on the nose in some ways. As much as I do love the book, it is very on the nose. Whereas Bickle is a person that I know is out there. Like I watched that movie, I think there are Travis Bickles on this earth walking around. They need help. It's very realistic. I, I do think they were just pushing the message as hard as they could with Fight Club. So I do I do think Fight Club's more bleak. Which gets us to a five to four win for Taxi Driver. Wow. I'm okay, that was a great they were both such great films. Oh, yeah. Taxi that Driver right. is a personal I love that movie. It's a favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah. that feels right. Thanks to you, Cam. Yeah, yeah. And thanks I, for joining us on this bleak journey. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much. Thanks, and, uh, Lyle. We're entering October, which means we're fixing to get into a little bit of horror, so we're working out some uh, some horror matchups for you all. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go get organized. We're going to go drink some bourbon and smoke cigars. Thank you for joining us again. I'm Kyle. I'm Drew. And I'm... <laughs> Love you. Drew, Phil, and I want to thank you for hanging out with us on the Movie Wars podcast. If you want to hang out with us until the next episode drops, find us on Instagram and TikTok, username Movie Wars Podcast. If you really love us and want to support us financially, we would love you back for it. Contributing to us on Patreon not only supports us financially, but it gets you access to private content that's not available to everyone. Thank you again for hanging out with Drew, Phil, and I. We love you. Have a great week.